You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's a delight to see everyone and to see so many new faces. We're grateful that you have decided to worship with us on this Sunday. We look forward to getting to meet you if you are a guest with us this morning. And you have come on a special Sunday. This is actually the anniversary of our church as we celebrate our ninth birthday. So it's been a long time, and uh, I spent some time, as I, as I do from time to time, but especially on uh, days like this, looking back at Facebook and Instagram to see all of the pictures of the past. And I want to encourage you, whether you are an old hat here at church or you're new, to go to the Facebook or Instagram pages and see those old pictures. They go all the way back to 2012, 2013, those very early days when we were meeting at Maryland Avenue Elementary School. It was just a small little group of us, and it's super encouraging then to hear just the full, wonderful voice, so many voices screaming out in gratitude for God's grace to us as a church. It really is. It really is a blessing to us. You know, in those early days, there were, there were a number of times when more than one of us was asking, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it through this thing? And uh, the, the truth is, no, we didn't. The Lord did. It was ultimately the Lord's work that has sustained our church over these years And we pray that he will continue to do that. Actually, we come to a providential sermon text this morning as we come to a text that I believe is about this very thing, what it means to be a faithful church in light of God's great commission in the world, which is what brought us to Bexley, to Columbus, to the surrounding communities, and what continues to motivate us as a church to make disciples, to share the gospel, and to see churches planted and missionaries sent around the world We pray God would keep using us and keep giving us this incredible gladness that we have because we belong to him and we belong to each other. And so I invite you, you know what to do. Please turn in your copy of God's word to Revelation chapter three. Our next text is verses seven through 13. Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13. Since the beginning of the very life of our church, we have been striving to really do one main thing, and that is just to be faithful to what the Lord calls us to be as a church in his word. We've wanted to be a faithful, in particular, Great Commission church. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, to be a Great Commission church simply means that we, we are prioritizing some key things that God has commanded us to do and has empowered us to do. And that is through the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ to see souls won to him, to see people become Christians, to repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus as the ultimate savior and king, the the one against whom there's no one greater, and then to make disciples in that to make disciples of all nations and to continually encourage one another and feed upon the word of God and grow together in our faith. And one thing has been certainly constantly clear, if at no other time, especially over the last couple of years, is that there are all kinds of things going on in the world. There is an ever-widening slew of issues and problems 
and concerns, and all of them are important. But what's most important is that as a church, we maintain our focus in the midst of those things, in this difficult world, on what God has called us to do, and that is to make disciples, to participate in this great commission that he has given to us. And so as we see here in this text, and as we see even as we look back, back across redemptive history, we see that the, the most faithful churches and the most faithful Christians are able to, in times like these, keep their composure and focus on that great commission to glorify God through this this ever-working good news that he has delivered to us. And we want to consider that this morning as we celebrate this ninth anniversary. We pray for nine more, at least, and that God would continue to use us as we look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. I've entitled this sermon in particular, Our Open Door to the World, because what we find in this text is God's commitment to his church opening a door for that very thing, which is the Great Commission. And so we're looking at three truths across these few verses that will encourage us as we continue forward as a church. We begin here in verse 7 as we see that that common kind of format that has happened in uh, the previous passages of Revelation in in chapter 2 and also chapter 3 as Jesus is speaking to a variety of churches in this letter that would circulate around. And here we come to the church at a place called Philadelphia. It says in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this. And here we find this first truth. If you're taking notes, I hope that you'll write it down. Keep considering it, pondering it together as you go home in community group life. Make it a matter of prayer in your life and in mine, the rest of us and in our church. And it's the recognition that God opens a great commission door for faithful churches. God opens a great commission door for faithful churches. Over the recent weeks in our preaching series through the book of Revelation, we have looked at a number of other churches and other places that are spoken to like this, and we've learned bit by bit, both in the positive where they're commended and in the negative where they're criticized or encouraged to change, what it looks like to be faithful to the gospel. You may remember that the church at Ephesus, though they had persevered, they had lost or left their first love. The Christians at Smyrna, they needed courage to continue enduring the coming suffering that was present with them and surely would continue. In Pergamum, they needed strength to strengthen their commitment to the truth. In Thyatira, they were full of love and faith, but even then they had tolerated the teaching of Jezebel of of their day, this false teaching that was was tempting them to, to draw away from Christ and his kingdom to other things. The church at Sardis was outwardly alive, but filled with a kind of death on the inside. And now we come to Philadelphia, which is a faithful church doing good ministry out of good motivations. We look at this church in the brief bit that we read about them, and and we want to be like them in many ways. 
We see that God opened a great commission door for them as a faithful church. Notice what he says in verse 8. Again, he says, I know your deeds. I know the whole spectrum of your life, your spiritual existence in the world. Behold, I have put before you an open door. An open door that no one can shut because you have a little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name. It would be a great shame if we, as a faithful church, striving, we're we're imperfect, but we're striving to be faithful, were to minimize this or that we were to gloss over this as as though it's just an ordinary kind of everyday Christian thing, of course, followed his word and, and didn't deny his name. Of course, none of us would ever do something like that, right? We caution ourselves when we hear that coming out of our own hearts. We know we have blind spots. We know we have remaining sin. We know we have doubts. We know we have fears. We know we're prone to wander, but we do not want to underestimate the absolute miracle that is spoken about in verse eight. You have followed my word and you have not denied my name. Under immense pressure from the world, the flesh, and the devil, these believers are being called out and noticed because in the midst of of other philosophies, other theologies, that they remain true to his word, and in particular, his word of the gospel. And that when there were many other names that they could claim, there were other other leaders that they could follow, other ways to live their lives, other worldviews to adopt, they did not deny his name. And in their faithfulness, God had opened for them a great commission door. It seems that the context here is, is their ministry in the world for God. And that's why when we see this open door, it makes most sense to me to see it as that very thing that he had opened a door for them that no one could shut. What we're really talking about here as we look at these words is we're, we're really talking about walls. Doors are movable walls and walls are immovable doors. And that is the greatest perhaps hindrance to the church is that we often feel ourselves as Christians as surrounded by walls. There seem to be all different kinds of things pressing in upon us, uh, keeping us from, from where we want to go, from what we want to do for the Lord. Again, we feel the tension of that trio, the world around us, and it's, it's, it's oppositional pressure against Christ and his grace and his gospel and his cross. We feel the pressure of even our own flesh. It's not just things out in the world that are troubling us. It's our own flesh. It's who we are. It's our own need to change. And then we also know that we have the pressure of the devil who's ever accusing us as the brethren of Christ together. He's the tempter, always tempting us to to lose sight of Christ, to deny his, his name or to stop following his word and follow the word of another. So as people who are in that situation, what do we need? Well, we need exactly what our church needed from the very beginning. We needed an open door. But there was a big problem. I said it earlier. I said so often, many of us felt like, are we going to make it? We're kind of floundering here. Have guests come and then we wouldn't see them again. And we were struggling, just a, a little church, so little power, like a newborn baby, 
couldn't sustain ourselves, couldn't build ourselves, couldn't build our own muscles. What do we need? We need an open door. And the reality is that these walls that are around us are beyond our ability. I can't open them. You can't open them. Even with all of our collective power, we cannot open them. But here's the good news. The good news of our God is he does not command us to open doors. He does not require us to move walls. He commands us and he requires us simply to be faithful and submissive to him. He will do the door opening and he will do it like no other. Look at this great commission and the actors in the drama. This, as you notice, it brings amazing glory to God. Do you notice who is opening the door? What kind of door opener are we reading about in Revelation chapter 3? The door is opened by a great and mighty king. Read those words again. He who is holy and true. He who has the key of David, the holder of the ultimate key to the covenantal kingdom of God. This is the key to the family of God that is needed in order to come into it. The door must be opened to us. And then you read that he has power to open doors which no one can shut and even to shut doors that no one can open. This is why the book of Revelation is so serious about exalting Christ. That's what we're trying to do Sunday by Sunday through the book of Revelation. There's, we said before, there's all kinds of sensational, amazing, startling, confusing things to see in the book of Revelation but it's easy for us to get distracted by them and miss the main point. The whole point to the book of Revelation is that there is a king who opens doors and no one can shut and who closes doors that no one can open. He's ultimately absolutely sovereign in all ways and in all things and he has chosen for his people to open a door. But who does he open it for? Who are these people? What are they like? We've hinted at it a bit earlier, but look more closely in verse 8, the way these people are described. They're described the way we feel, the way we as a church have always felt. You have little power. It's the smallness of their church. It was just this little group of people, just fledgling little group of Christians making their way in the world for the glory of God. And what does he do for them? For them, he opens a door that no one can shut. And he opens the very greatest of doors, a door by which they would, they would go out and have success because of his grace and his power to fulfill his great commission to them. He has chosen to open a door for these who have little power. Boy, you really see there a big difference between this world system and God's world system, because that's not what this world system does. This world system doesn't open doors for people who have no power. It opens doors for people who have most power. But God, in his grace, has a different way. He has a different plan that puts on display his glory above all else, because he chooses the things that are not in order to shame the things that are. He chooses the weak things of the world and the foolish things of the world so that he could shame the strong. He chooses those who are nothing 
so that he can put on display that he is everything. He had given them grace to do these things, to follow his word, to magnify his name. And this is the Great Commission. That's what the Great Commission is. It is to keep his word and to magnify his name. Listen to what we read in Matthew 28. You heard this just a little bit earlier. This is a classic passage in the New Testament about the Great Commission. When the church receives her orders to submit to Christ in the world according to his plan, to be a tool, an instrument in his redemptive hands, this is what it says. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, Insert there, door opener, door closer. Verse 19, go therefore, because I have all authority, I open doors and I close them and no one stops me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You hear it embedded right there in the Great Commission. It is to follow his word and to magnify his name. These nine years in weakness and difficulty, in some ways failure, that's what we've been striving to do. In all of our imperfection, in all of our weakness, that's what we want to keep striving to do, to follow his word and to magnify his name. Well, that means that every person in a church like ours ought to be committed in practical ways to making disciples. So I want you to think about a question this morning and maybe even this week and longer. And that question is, how are you participating in this great commission? Think for a moment about where you fit into this plan of following his word and exalting his name with the purpose of seeing others come to know Christ and then grow in their faith. How is your life investing in those things? How is your time being given to to strengthening and uplifting others so that they can know Christ the way you have come to know Christ? How are you participating in the other direction of submitting yourself to other believers who are helping to disciple you? This is a family affair. It's something that we do together. This is a key question because this is the door that he's opened for you. This is the door that he's opened for us. Now, as you think about that, you might find that there are many great ways that you are engaging with people in disciple-making. You're spending good time in conversation and, and investing in other people, and they're investing in you. But you may also find other areas of your life or many areas of your life where that's not happening. There are all kinds, as we've said, all kinds of pressures, all kinds of things that, that pull us away, that, that threaten to sideline us from this mission that God has given to us. Well, that's not what we want. We want everybody to be off the sideline in this enormous great commission so that we can participate together. So I ask you to consider that very carefully. If you need help answering that question or finding a way to get more involved, that's what we want to be about. We want everybody using their gifts in our church and so We have many ways that you can get in touch with those who are leading ministries in the church or talk to the pastors. We're very approachable, easy to talk to us and talk about different ways you can get involved. 
We want to do that because that's what strengthens us and helps us to keep walking through this door that God has opened. God has big plans for the ministry of faithful churches and Christians, and that's what you see next. Listen to this big plan. What is God doing among faithful Christians who go through this open door of the Great Commission? Among many things, if we boil it down, God humbles the world through faithful ministry. That's number two. God humbles the world through faithful ministry. What exactly does that mean? Let's think about that as we look at just verse 9. The plans that God has for faithful churches in the Bible goes beyond just the present moment of good deeds in the world. It goes beyond the kinds of needs that we may meet here or out in our neighborhoods, communities, our workplaces, our schools. It goes beyond this present moment that sometimes we become so ensnared by, but it goes beyond that to a marked time of submission When the Great Commission, as faithful Christians and churches go out into the world, God uses them, he empowers them to make an impact. And what kind of impact does he make? Well, let's take a look here at verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, well, those are serious words, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. We've heard this a little before in the book of Revelation and other places in the Bible, that God is pointing out here, talking about the synagogue of Satan, is a kind of false church, a false way of seeing yourself and life, and in fact being mistaken about who you really are. These who say that they're Jews, they say they belong to God's covenant people. They say that their hearts are aligned with his. We've heard about the, the deficiencies in the last few sermons from Revelation that in fact they are living a lie. But notice what he does. He impacts these covenant breakers in such a way that they are humbled before him. Look at the second part of verse 9 and see how they're impacted. They will bow either to or with God and his people. Look at it there. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, what is so incredible about this is who he is working with. He's working with a small little group of faithful Christians. They have very little power. He opens this incredible door for them, and as he goes out with them, just as Jesus said in Matthew, that he would be with them to the very end of the age, he's not just walking alongside them. He's actually enabling them. He's working his power in the lives of other people, and it's having a difference in their lives. But who is it impacting? It's impacting those that you would think are absolutely the most lost causes in the world. Can you think of any way to talk about a lost cause more seriously than to call it a synagogue of Satan? There's nothing worse. And yet, God in his grace is at work among them, and he is finding lost causes You guys, I've seen so many lost causes in my life, in my time as a pastor, in our church and other places. And not all of those lost causes were found. That's that's not God's will. 
but many were. And it's an amazing thing to see. I know someone right now who, is, who has been in and out of homelessness and, and actually has almost what seems to be an impossibility to think clearly about life and the world and certainly never gives any thought to the Lord or, or, or his expectations or his law. But he even now is not a lost cause. Perhaps God will reach him. That's what we're praying for. That's what we want. We want him to reach them. Well, what happens when he reaches them? They come and they bow before them. Now, it's a little unclear here whether, whether they're bowing in submission because they have been sort of, as we read about in other places in the Bible, conquered by God and they remain his enemy and then they're, they're dealt with in justice and judgment. But it seems to me that while that may be the case among some, there are others who bow before them with them. They bow in submission to the grace of God as people who have been changed because that's what changed people do. That's what people who come to Christ do. They don't stand up. They bow. They fall on their faces before him in honor and in dependence and in ultimate happiness and worship because of what he has done for them. Well, how does that happen? How does God do that? How does God take people from a synagogue of Satan and cause them to bow how does he change their hearts? Well, I want you to see this because it's one of these places, again, that I'm, I'm very likely just to pass right over. He does it by expressing to them his love. Of all the things that God could express to his enemies, here he shows a point that his love is powerful in changing people. And that this is what he shows them. He shows them his love for his people. This is how he changes the world. This is what he puts on display. He doesn't shower the world with more expectations and requirements. He doesn't announce only to the world his wrath and his hatred of sin. He certainly does that. But that's not what changes people. That's only what prepares them to hear the changing word, which is the gospel. And that is a message of love. Notice this. This caught my attention and I can't shake it. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and make them to know that I hate them. That's not what he says. To make them to know how angry I am with them. That's not what he says. I will make them to know that I have loved you. This is how he's glorifying himself. He's glorifying himself by putting on magnificent display on the backdrop of sin and law, his overwhelming mercy, his grace, and his love. To glorify God is to magnify him, much like you would with a magnifying glass to, to enlarge something and put it on display. What is God putting on display in the world in this text? Certainly, yes, his wrath is on display. It will be on display, unlike at any other time. But what is on display in this text? It is his reigning love. It is his glad and happy, rejoicing love for his people. This is the ultimate way that God wins the lost, by revealing to them his love. 
The revelation of his love does what the law cannot. The law and all of its righteous expectations and demands and commandments and threatenings, it cannot bring anyone to Christ. No one comes to Christ because we told them the law. But what it does is God uses it to soften their hearts so that that good news of the gospel, the good news of his love, will reach them and will lift them up and bring them to himself. It is an amazing truth. This is ultimately what God is putting on display in the world and hopefully in his faithful churches. Even that central passage of scripture that we all know so well, it's, it's kind of our motto, John 3, 16 and 17. What does it say? What does it declare? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Now, where does that hit the road of our lives? What does that mean to my daily life as a Great Commission Christian in the world? It means at least this. I need to be careful to ensure that love is on the top of my tongue. That when I talk about God, I don't just talk about his wrath, though I do. I don't just talk about his coming judgment, though I do, or his righteous, incredible expectations and requirements in his law, though we do. But on the tip of our tongue ought always to be that he is abounding in love because the law can't bring anyone to Christ. You never run to your enemy for grace You only run to God as king when you are assured of his love. And that's a good question for us as we share the gospel. I hope all of us are thinking about how we can share the gospel out in our communities and and wherever we go, just as the Bible has commanded us to. But to make sure that we are thinking about how we clearly communicate the overwhelming love of God. And boy, we have a great story to tell, just as these believers did. This is the story that he's telling to make known to the synagogue of Satan how he has loved his people. That's what we should do. Tell people how he has loved you because this is a tool that he brings people into his kingdom by. And you know that I, I, I love the Puritans. I love in particular Richard Sibbs. And I know sometimes it's hard to, to, to make it through a, a quoted piece of their writing. But bear with this. Because there is one from Richard Sibbs in a book called The Excellency of the Gospel Above the Law that strikes a chord on this note. Listen carefully to what he says. It'll be on the screen so you can read along silently. He says, do but consider... What a loving God we have. I don't hear very many people doing that in the world. I don't hear very many people talking about and considering what a loving God we have. He says, do consider. Who would not be so far in love with his only son as to keep him to himself when we had need of him. A God that accounts himself most glorious in those attributes that are most for our comfort. He accounts not himself so glorious for his wisdom, for his power, or for his justice, as for his mercy and grace, for his philanthropia, his love of man. 
Shall not we therefore even be inflamed with a desire of gratifying him who has joined his glory with our salvation, that accounts himself glorious in his mercy above all other attributes, and we shall be so dead and frozen-hearted that reap the crop as, to, as not to acknowledge this glory of God breaking out in the gospel, the glory of his mercy and grace. We sum all that up. If you want to glorify God, make your life a shining example of God's glory and grace and mercy, his love. Make that your song. Sing that song to everyone you can. Yes, tell them about the law. That is a prerequisite. Tell them about sin and how serious God is about it and that he was so serious that on a mission of love, he sent his own son and he seriously loves sinners like us. That is our great hope. And that love is what even carries us to this third truth. And it is an amazing truth, an amazing fact. And that is that even, even through that love, the church will minister in these incredible ways in the Great Commission through great tribulation. Now, while the Bible's not explicit about it, I believe that Jesus will return for his people after the tribulation. And therefore, I want my people to be ready. I don't think that he will exempt us from suffering in the world, but rather he will magnify and glorify his love for us in the midst of it. And notice what we find next in verse 10 and following. That in the midst of that kind of trial and tribulation and suffering in the world, God protects faithful churches. He protects them, he walks with them, he perseveres them. The Christians at Philadelphia are commended for their perseverance through suffering. He's already talked about them being persevering here in verse 10. But you have kept my word of perseverance. He says, I also, here comes a promise to keep them in the hour of testing that's coming upon the world. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. We have this incredible theme through the book of Revelation. We've seen it over and over again. Here it is. It is the theme of overcoming. Look at verse 11. Notice how they overcome. This is key for your life and mine. You feel the pressure of the world. You feel the difficulty of suffering. You feel the pull of all of these other things going on around you. Listen to this. There is a promise to stabilize you, and there is a command to hold firm, and these are the keys of perseverance. Verse 11, he says the promise, I am coming quickly. And here's the command, hold firmly to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Think about your life. In the moments of crisis and suffering, what is it that gets you through? What is it that brings you through those hard times? It's always the hope of coming help. 
You're always looking out. When is help coming? Who is coming to help me in the midst of this crisis? And when you don't see anyone, Lord willing, you go find someone. You're looking for someone who can come alongside you. We have no one better than the Lord himself. He says, I am coming quickly. But also we have a resolve to hold firm in the midst of suffering, knowing that he is coming quickly. Now, before we bring this time to a close, though, there is a tricky little bit that we have to talk about. And that is, what in the world does it mean coming quickly? I am coming quickly. Well, now we have kind of settled in after 2,000 years of church history, and we ask, where are you? I thought you were coming quickly. Well, obviously, we must have misunderstood something about this. I think that we have. I think the way that I have often misunderstood his coming quickly and it been a kind of disappointment, like, I thought you'd be here by now and all of these years have passed, we're ready, come quickly, Lord Jesus, is because I've always thought about it in terms of some time. It's actually coming quickly, as though lunch is coming quickly. But it's not that at all, and how do we know it's not that at all? Because if that were the case, he would not necessarily say, hold firm, overcome, persevere, stay with me. If someone is coming in just a few minutes, there's not a lot of reason to hold firm. They're coming quickly, but rather he is coming and his coming is imminent. No one knows the the hour or the day. No one knows, but instead we have this hope. We have this hope knowing that he's coming quickly and that even now he is with us. He's holding us firmly. Therefore, we can hold him firmly. And what wonderful promises he gives us as those who will overcome with him. Look at this last, and then we come to a close. In verse 12, he says, The one who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And then he tells them that he's going to give them, that he's going to give us a new name. He says, I will write on him the name of my God. This is the covenant God, the God who opens doors that no one can shut and shuts doors that no one can open. The God who opened the door of salvation to us in Christ. The God who opened the door of the great commission to us so that we would be useful to him and bringing all different kinds of people into his kingdom, into his covenant family. But then he goes on and he says, and the name of the city of my God. This is the new Jerusalem. This is that future vision of a place where there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no tears. It's God's people with him, worshiping him in ultimate glory and gladness forevermore. That's what we're looking forward to. And he gives us this new name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem. It comes down out of heaven. And he says, and I will give to them my new name. Of course, those who are persevering with him, they know his new name. His name is Lord. That's how they persevere. They're of little strength. They ask every day, I don't know that we're going to make it. How are we going to make it? I don't have strength to make it. But here is the Lord with his new name as our forever Lord. And that's why we're persevering. And that's who we will know all the way to the very end and forevermore. Therefore, the last application, which is an enormous one for us, it's one that we must continue to work at together as we have been, and that is to hold firm to the gospel 
with real and cheerful hope and to do it together. You can't do it alone. You can't do it as individual Christians. That's why the church is so important. You have to have the church. That's God's design. And that's why we are together. That's what has sustained us these nine years. That's what we pray and depend upon to sustain us for nine more. Of course, that begins by coming to Christ first and foremost. Whether you're on the live stream watching or the recording or you're here with us, I implore you to come to Christ. I don't know how else to put it. I don't, how, I don't know how to be more excited about Jesus Christ. I want you to come to him. I want you to repent of your sin and place your trust in him so that you can belong to him. There's no one else. There's no one else to belong to. And so our prayer is that you will, you will talk with us about that if you have questions. And that if not, that you would come to Christ today in your heart, that you would confess him as your Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and God promises you that you will be saved. And if that is something that God is doing in your heart, let us know about it. We want to help you. If that's something God has done in your heart, let us know about it. We want to walk with you because we believe that God has opened for us an enormous door of the Great Commission. And it is what makes us glad to join him in his work in the world. I want to invite you to stand with me as we pray and prepare our hearts to sing yet again. And I hope that as you stand and as you think about the lyrics of the songs that we sing in these next few minutes, that you will infuse them with what you have heard this morning from God's word. That you will infuse them with an eye on faithfulness and perseverance and glorifying God. And that you will magnify in your heart to him with me his enormous love for us. Because that love is what changes our world. Our Father, you are the king of love. The world knows no love like yours. We play Valentine's games about love. We think that we know, but we do not. No one loves like you. And you have set your love upon us before the foundations of the world. You have kept your love upon us down through the ages of redemptive history. Even in this moment, your love is upon us, immovable, because you've opened doors that no one can shut. And you're keeping us. And we pray this morning that as the, the weeks roll on, that your love will be a greater and greater theme in our lives and in our hearts, and that the world will see how you have loved us and that that will be the heart of our great commission with you. We pray for your help. We pray for your grace and your mercy. Give us courage, strengthen us, grow us, so that we can sing all the more and proclaim all the more the excellencies of the God who has loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.